0: TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favourite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Mark Smith. Dr. Mark graduated from from the Loughborough University of Technology, England, with a Bachelor of Science in PE and Sports Science and obtained his teaching certificate in mathematics. He was a top-level rugby player, and he moved to the States to play for the Boston Rugby Club. That search led him to Colorado State University, where he completed his Master's degree in Exercise and Sports Science, specializing in exercise physiology. He began researching and developing innovative, high-intensity, short-duration training protocols that have since become recognised as some of the most effective conditioning methods available. His main interest today is prevention of disease and optimization of one's health by lifestyle modification. He emphasizes education as a means to bridge what he feels there is a large gap between specific health-related research and the general public's awareness of the research. He's now on the, on the advisory board of ThePaleoDiet.com with Lauren Cordain, who we interviewed just two episodes ago. Welcome to the show, Dr. Mark Smith.
1: Thanks, Brian. Thanks very much for having me.
0: Oh, Mark, your introduction, I, I had to abridge that so much because you've done so much in the world of sport and exercise and research. Um, it's going to be a fascinating interview, I think. And, and as I said, I'm really excited about the, your ability to bridge the gap between the research and the general public because I think there's a big gap there.
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I you know, that's what I try to do. Hopefully, I do a pretty good job of it. Well,
0: I like, um, I like that. You know, I remember one of uh, – one of my early mentors in chiropractic, thats what he told me that. He said, you know, the name doctor, doctor means teacher. And he said, so if you want to call yourself a doctor, your job is to take all this complex information and make it simple for people so they can understand it and make a change. So, it sounds like exactly yeah. what you're doing, Mark. So, you've had quite an extensive career, obviously, in sport and in, in research and in health and wellness. So, how did this whole journey start for you, Mark?
1: Um. You know, as a as a youngster, I was um, I was actually a tennis and rugby player. Rugby became the main sport for me. Um, and once that had happened, uh, the goal was to go to it's actually pronounced Loughborough University.
0: Um, I knew I got that wrong. As I said it, I thought I right, said that right. wrong. I,
1: that, that, I think that's that's. Fair. I don't think anyone gets that right unless they've <laughs> actually been there or or from Britain. Um, and uh, so you know that. that we were They were one of the top, other than perhaps Oxford and Cambridge, we were pretty much the top university for rugby. So, um, actually, I remember Nick Far Jones coming and I having a beer with him when I was actually a fresher, so I didn't play in the game, but it was uh, University of Sydney against Loughborough. I forget who won, it was close. I think he might have pipped us. But um, yeah, so Loughborough was huge for rugby, so that, that was really the start of it. And of course, if you go to Loughborough, what do you do? It's a big sports science college, and uh, that's what I wanted to do anyway. So, did my undergrad, as you've already sort of talked about, and just most of the professors have I had either come to the States and done a master's or a doctorate, and I kind of wanted to continue the education. And and in particular, I remember taking a course um, where they had stated that, you know, most of the heart disease uh, is due to lifestyle and that, you know, that could be changed. And I just thought, wow, that, that'd be a cool thing to get into. So... So, you know, pursued looking into coming to the States to do a master's, which, uh, as you just said, let, let me, led me to Colorado State University and did the um, the master's in exercise physiology. And um, that's where I first met Dr. Cordain. He was actually my advisor for my master's degree. Um, and so it's funny that I look back on it. You know, my master's degree had nothing to do with paleo because it was that early on that... He, he was so early and he hadn't really even said to me hey you should be doing something in paleo you know so it wasn't until i'd finished my master's and started my doctorate that we really started talking paleo um, which i was doing frequently with him um, so i had looked into doing my doctorate uh, in the physiology department and my interest as i said was heart disease so um, uh, stepped over to the physiology department did some more medically based sort of research. I was looking at the development of atherosclerosis and trying to halt it. And and that was where one of the first things that, you know, my remember in my defense, you know, was the, the most obvious thing here is not to get it in the first place. Um, you know, we're trying to, we're inducing it in animal models and then trying to you know, use different interventions to stop it or to slow it down. And it's like, well, the obvious thing, the control group that didn't get the atherogenic diet didn't have the problem. There's a good concept. How about getting out in the world and educating people about doing that? And then, of course, when then paleo with Lauren was sitting right there, all of those things that were involved with heart disease were cleaning up very quickly with people, even though That's not what we first started doing it for. We were doing it for um, autoimmune disease um, and saw some great help with people with that. So things like weight loss and uh, reversal of metabolic syndrome were more side effects that were like, oh, okay, so it's it's probably good for everyone to do. So that's how the journey into paleo started. And then at the same time, another professor, who was actually the department chair, was also critical of the fitness industry going into this long, slow cardio and was saying, look, you know, he was a biomechanist looking at um, Olympic athletes and going back. And he said, I've just noticed that the sprinters, when we have these reunions, they're the fitter and healthier people. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you know, I think, you know, you need to look into this. So that, that then led me to also. So kind of a two-pronged attack to health and wellness was paleolithic nutrition and high-intensity interval training, more specifically sprint interval training or supermaximal interval training, which we can elaborate on because th- there's a lot of misconception out there and a lot of mistakes going on in the fitness world uh, in the high-intensity world because I think people don't quite get it sometimes.
0: Yeah, definitely love to get into that. that- that's something I really want to talk to you about, particularly I've, I've started doing CrossFit, marks so I'm going to ask you for your opinion on that a little bit later too. But before we get to that, i just got to say, you know, stumbling across Lauren Cordain as your master's advisor I mean what an incredible stroke of luck I mean you know there would there must be a, a, a queue of people around the world now lining up to be able to work with Lauren Cordain in any sort of uh, you know research capacity you must be very ble- you feel very blessed to have stumbled into that role.
1: I do you know it was um, it's, it's only in the last few years that we've sort of started working together you know on a, on a daily basis you know we were sort of other than that, we, you know, Lauren was doing his thing and I was doing my thing. And it's kind of funny because, you know, I look at, you know, people that have, you know, certainly far uh, more well-known than I am, um, you know, the, the Rob Wolfs, the Sissons and those sorts of people. You know, I was <laughs> doing this long before any of those guys. And, it, and I think part of the problem perhaps why I didn't um, make more of a noise in that, it, it, it was to me such an obvious and simple um, Message that I was like, oh, okay, this is it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> done. QED. <laughs> and all I started doing, and I was just helping hundreds and thousands of people on, on a level what I just lecture anything else. But in terms of like the internet and social media or books or anything, that's where I hadn't done anything that's still to come. Um, if the market's not saturated, but I think I've probably got uh, a message that would be worth hearing. Um, but just clinically working with people and, and talking to people, I've, I've been doing it since, you know, about 1990 is when, when we started sort of talking about it with Lauren quite a lot. So, you know, we we, we reconnected recently, but I, I had always said, you know, when we did talk, I said, look, at the end of the day, probably the most important thing I will have ever been involved in is is the introduction to for nutrition and how many people I would have helped because of sharing the message. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I absolutely do feel very fortunate to have been at the right place at the right time in that regard.
0: And, you know, it's fascinating that you suggested, that you said that, uh, you know, that the work you started doing originally was looking into autoimmune conditions because speaking to Lauren just recently for, for our interview, you know, he was saying that he thinks that's the next big thing is people finally coming around and starting to understand the impacts that paleo can have on autoimmune type disorders, you know, saying, well, you know, they've sort of, they've looked into the heart disease, they've looked into the weight loss aspect of it, but but they're only sort of just coming around now to the autoimmune stuff, which is fascinating given that's kind of what you first started with.
1: Well, it was. I mean, it, it's funny too. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of on the pulse of a lot of the negativity in Australia against the paleo diet and like against Pete Evans and things like that. And it's quite shocking to me. Um, I mean, I've written a few things. If, if people go to off the mark or go to the diet.com, all of it's at the com. if they put my name in. I've, I've run, written quite a few rebuttals to the rebuttals. Um, and I've got a few more in the works right now because I, I just sort of raised my eyebrows. I mean, the first and most obvious thing that anyone that wants to be critical of the diet, all they have to do is do a dietary analysis, right? And no one, they don't do that. They just shout out things like it's dangerous, it's this. Well, the first point is, is when we were talking about this, uh, back in the, you know, early nineties, we're sitting there and going, well, look, this, this idea of eliminating foods that theoretically, you know, and again, it was, it, it was a hypothesis when we were doing this. We're like, well, I don't think, you know, looking at the archaeological record, the dairy, grains, legumes would have been um, uh, available, and, and, and eventually they were, but, you know, for the most part, our, our genetics wouldn't have evolved eating them. I mean, it made sense, but it's still, I don't, you know, when we, people get into the nuances of arguing, you know, when a certain introduction of a grain may have come in, it's like, I don't really give a damn, it's so stupid, because... At the end of the day all you have to do is look at the modern research and you know we're not eating the exact same food anyway you know that the an apple today is not an apple from prehistoric times and etc etc et we can say that about everything so it's just a template and an idea for us to go look what would be optimal nutrition well do you think we would have been stupid enough to go down this avenue of putting all this time and energy and if not doing the very first basic thing which is what what is the nutrient analysis of a diet it eliminates grains, dairy, and legumes. We did that back in the 90s. And anyone can do it today. And there's no deficiencies. And in fact, what you'll find is it actually improves the diet with the 13 most uh, deficient nutrients that we see in the typical Western diet. And in fact, there's just been a paper out of Australia. And they've done that dietary analysis. People can go and look at it. And you know, you see, you know, the biggest thing, all oh, you're gonna be losing fiber. Guess what? The fiber goes up. So you know, again, all of that is just nonsense. When I see all this negativity, it just—it's stupid, and it—it's going on for a while. But the battle will be lost. It's, <laughs> got no it's, choice. It's
0: phenomenal it, it, that you did that research in the nineties, and yet we still have experts in Australia and around the world going on television in the media saying that people are going to be nutrient deficient because they're not getting their grains.
1: It's—it's it's absolutely ludicrous. All they—I I mean. There's going to be we're we're working on a number of projects right now. I mean, one of the ones that I'm doing, you know, and people go, "There's no research." I'm just we're updating the latest experimental human trial data. So there's we're about we're we're in the 20s now, you know, of just that, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to just start listing where people can go and and be more specific in the criticism because I'm like, look, let's be open and let's let's uh, you know discuss things, but the the stupidity of you know it's dangerous and then nothing to back that statement up. Um, that, that doesn't help anyone, and I think what we're seeing is, is obviously is a bit of a sort of uh, crazy reaction um, to, to probably corporate interests, uh, to be honest with you. I mean, you have the ridiculous situation. I just wrote a rebuttal to the, uh, the professor out of University of Melbourne, who, quite frankly, I think he, he should be disciplined. You know, he's a guy head of the Diabetes Association in Australia, and you've got clear research showing a benefit of adopting a paleolithic approach to helping type 2 diabetics, and he's out there saying, you know, fraudulently, basically lying. I mean, I, if you go to thepeleodot.com and put in I smell a rat, which was the piece I did. <laughs> I mean, you can he, – you know, here's the thing. You do a piece of research, you submit it to a journal. The research, we've, we've criticized plenty about it. When you use a rat model that's specifically bred to become fat on a uh, low-carbohydrate diet, you know that that's obviously questionable right there also if you're trying to argue the premise that uh what you evolved eating would be the good diet to go in fact his study supported the paleolithic principle because the rats that were on the control diet aka not the human diet they were trying to test did much better but more than anything if you if you go and you search the PDF download, you'll see that the word paleo or paleolithic is not used in the paper. In other words, it was not about paleolithic nutrition, but then he goes out and does a press release and media interviews talking about the diet being bad. That's completely unethical yeah. and irresponsible from a professor, and I think he should be you should be disciplined for that. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous.
0: Yeah, it, it was a bit of an absurd one. I, I can remember at the time. I think I shared it on my Facebook page, and I I used a picture of you know Splinter from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know, because because they were somehow confusing the you know the the innate diet of a rat with the innate diet of a person, and and even then the diet wasn't really you know resembling what a rat would eat in, in nature anyway. But uh, but it was just
1: and yeah. the, and of course the diet that they gave was not resembling anything like. Apparently diet. Oh no, Not no! The even. the
0: ingredients of what they were actually feeding them was was nothing like real food. It was it was incredible. So
1: yeah, yeah. So, so you know, and then there's a group that, that found me on Facebook, and they you know, they they, so they send me a lot of stuff, and so I, I get it, it's mostly Australian, so I get a lot of stuff. So I'm very up on the sort of crazy negativity that's going on down there. It's it's very surprising to me because. It was only recently when I got back into the social media side of it and just going, I had never experienced anything like this. All I was doing to people is going, look, you know, it's a template. We're trying to say eliminate as much as you can, grains, dairy, and legumes. I'm not saying don't ever have any, you know. But, you know, just make choices and hey, at the end of the day, human, human physiology is so complex. If going on the paleo diet is that traumatic to you and you're missing things, you could make the argument endogenous opioids in the brain aren't going to be released because you're so unhappy. And you know what? Maybe that diet is better for you. You know what I mean? So for us, it was about just trying to talk about the science about what would be optimal nutrition, give it a go. You know, And, and the other funny side of it is, is if, if it was so difficult to follow or making people so unhappy or it was so expensive or it was so dangerous, why is it the fastest growing diet? Why has Pete Evans now got over a million people on his Facebook page and just post after post going, wow, I feel better. You know, it's like, but there's more and more research coming out. But to be perfectly honest with you, having done this for over, you know, 25 years, I don't, I don't need any research to know that this thing works. It's, it's just common sense. Well. It works. Simple as that.
0: What I gotta say, Mug, is it's great to have people like you doing what you do because there is so much going on, particularly down here in Australia at the moment. And what people see is the pressure that gets put on in the media. You know, they see the public stuff where paleo gets bagged and it gets distorted and all those sort of things. But what they don't necessarily see is the pressure that gets put on behind the scenes. You know, our regulatory bodies here in Australia. You know, if you say something that's out of the mainstream, out of the norm. Then there's quite a lot of pressure being applied at the moment to individual practitioners, saying that you know they're practicing outside of their scope of practice, right. they're practicing yeah. outside of the mainstream. You know, I know that's certainly been the case for myself. People like Gary Fetke, people like um, you know some of the the people who've advised Pete Evans. Um, you know, there's a lot going on behind the scenes as well in terms of really defending that turf and. You know, I think I think it's dangerous. You know, you, you mentioned before that that criticism is a good thing. You know, I think if we're talking about science, then the, the whole premise of scientific method is is starts with hypothesis. You know, right. if if people aren't allowed to express their opinions, if they aren't allowed to suggest that maybe there's an alternative view, then we're missing out on that whole first phase of scientific hypothesis, which is really what drives us to do new research and to and to change the norm, which often you know needs to happen in scientific progress.
1: I mean, you know. That's one of the things we're really trying, you know, one of the goals that uh, we did at thepaleo.com and I recently kind of wrote a bit of a mission statement and said, look, we want this to be open-ended. You know, there are disagreements within the paleosphere. You know, certainly some people are saying, Lauren's too strict. I often um, will push back at that and say, look, first off, Lauren has always said Um, an eighty-five-fifteen approach is more than acceptable for most people. Now, when we started, we were talking about autoimmune patients. So we were stricter because you kind of have to be because it doesn't take more than a morsel to uh, create a a reaction. But, you know, so that's not strict. But what we've tried to do is to say should, you know, I remember reading one article, I was like, you know, cordain's too strict, you know, the, the, the potato's back on the table. But should it be in the paleo template that is ad libitum? That's that's our point. I think the template needs to be foods, which I've always done with my clients. I've never told them how much to eat of protein or vegetables or fruit or nuts. I've often said, you know, don't go too crazy on the nuts, maybe limit it to a a handful or something. But everything else, let your body kind of tell you what sort of um, protein and plant ratio your body needs. Because I think, you know, if you look at the, you know, Lauren's paper on plant uh, animal substance ratio, substance ratio, it's very varied, you know, throughout the hunter-gatherer tribes they looked at. So my thought process there was to just say to my clients, look, you know, here's your template, and eat off that, and then allow, you know, non-paleo foods 15% of the time. And and even that ratio is going to change and be very individualistic. You know, so the potato... You know, the anti-nutrient debate I've seen in the p- paleosphere sometimes people go, you know, they get destroyed by cooking. It's, yeah, a, f- a significant proportion does, but anti-nutrients work in the parts per million. So, you know, and I'll, I'll bring up some of that autoimmune stuff where we've got some very interesting case studies where I saw that firsthand. So again, for a lot of people, and particularly uh, you just said cross-fitting, I mean, you're burning crazy amounts of calories so the high glycemic part of a potato wouldn't be an issue or would honey or anything else. But the anti-nutrients might be for some people. So does it deserve to be on the paleo template or just leave it in that that 15%? And certainly some people know that they could include it and have no adverse effects, but some people could. So that's where we try to keep the, the template as clean as possible and then let people add on to it. Because I think if you don't and you start to have some foods in there such as legumes and potatoes and you get a newbie coming and starts doing it, they might start doing that as a very high percentage of the diet and then they, that might be more of a problem. So, that, that's our position kind of uh, on that side of it.
0: I like it, mate. Well, you started to go on to my next topic which is I did want to talk to you about some of this fitness stuff because I'm really interested to hear your perspective on high intensity interval training and, and how you think um, you know, we should be doing that and how that fits into the paleo approach to living.
1: Well, when I started um, researching this, you know, one of the things that I I sort of said, look, in order for you to survive in Paleolithic times, you basically had to catch food and you had to avoid becoming food. Those were the two probably biggest requirements for for sort of perambulation. You know, you – I don't – you know, there are – You know, people often come back at me with this with the persistent hunting thing, but that's a very small part of Africa where that that occurred, and and I'm I'm going to be writing a whole article on that. But it's common sense for people to understand that you suddenly see a lion, you better get to a tree within about 60 seconds, because any human at 60 seconds is going to start slowing down significantly. Get up that tree or you're out of the gene pool, right? And then similarly, if you're trying to catch animals or you're going to have to do some sprinting at some point probably, Right. But um, so one of the things that that, uh, that that was sort of common sense to me, and then I just started looking at the modern research. So this was back in the early 90s. And what, we, what I really saw, one of the things that was very significant was looking at the, re- the recovery time needed in order to re- redo or be able to... Um, uh, uh, produce the power output that one could get in about anywhere from 10 to 60 seconds and it, it's a minimum of about four minutes all right and even that and, and i'd say real minimum and i say to people like imagine you you know you're running 400 meters at the olympics all right and you you've got another race in the afternoon i mean These guys, if they're ahead, they start, they even do it in 100. I mean, they're saving energy for later in the day. So when I say four minutes, I mean, I just say to someone, like, imagine you go to a stadium stairs and you sprint as hard as you can for 60 seconds. I mean, and you're absolutely, your lungs are burning, you're absolutely exhausted. And you, you you know, you were basically offered a big pile of cash if you could get certain what You're giving it everything. So a lot of high intensity interval training, okay, we're going to have a minute's recovery and then we're going to go again. Are you kidding me? A minute's recovery, you're you're not even close to being ready to go again, right? Yeah. So if you only have a minute's recovery, what's that second interval going to look like? Well, the power output's going to be way, way down. It's not going to be a sprint. It's going to be very, very low. So what happens is if someone knows they're going to go only a minute recovery and then another minute, obviously the intensity is going to drop down significantly in the intervals. It has to. There's no human that can do it any other way. So, So what I tell people is, is look, what you should be doing, and the research, you know, I don't know how much time we'd have to get into it today because on this topic I could talk for a week. You you only, you, you cannot go beyond 60 seconds super maximally, um, and, and even for certain things, you know, literally now the research is showing 10 seconds can be very effective. But then you need plenty of recovery for all of the, the energy stores to replenish, and that doesn't happen quickly, all right? As I said, a four-minute uh, recovery would be, you know, a minimum. So, you get too much out in the world of this sort of boot camp type stuff or interval training programs where it's go hard for a minute, easy for a minute, hard for a minute, easy for a minute, etc. As soon as I hear that, I go, okay, so the hard is not that hard. It's, <laughs> it's what it's, um, it could be super maximal, meaning above 100% VO2 max, but the human body has the capability of going 200, 250% VO2 max. All right. That's a true sprint, an all out sprint. Very, very different. And the research supports the physiological benefits come from that kind of intensity far more than just an intensity that is hard, huh, but not super maximal or all-out max.
0: So what about the research for like a Tabata-style training, Mark? I mean, obviously, that's, that's even shorter. That's like 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. And, and it, it's, the stuff I've seen seems to suggest that there was some real benefits from doing it that way. Is, is that now older research being replaced or what's the story there?
1: I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of my pet peeves. That that was one research study done in Japan, and it was um Jap on for Japanese skaters. All right. Now yeah. that protocol it lasts about two minutes and 40 seconds. So the exact protocol for Tabatas are is 20 seconds with a 10-second recovery, seven to eight repetitions. Yeah. Okay. So again, and the the intensity of that is 170%. VO2 max, all right, Let me, let me I should explain for people when we talk about 170% VO2 max, 250% VO2 max, most people when I say to them, okay, if something's 100% VO2 max, is that all you have? And they often go, yes, that's it. Mm. That's a maximal effort. Yeah, actually, it's not. So here's what you need to understand. 100, 100% VO2 max represents the power output attained when you're doing a VO2 max graded stress test. But that's done over a period of time, where they're gradually increasing the intensity every two to three minutes, and so by the time you reach your plateau of oxygen consumption max, you know being maximized, um, you've already been doing it. Maybe you know it depends on the the fitness of the individual, but you know six to you know somewhere six to ten, twelve minutes, something like that. And that's a very different thing from just going all out zero to sixty, so to speak. So when when that is done. The Let's say you were on a treadmill with a certain grade and a certain speed, that's a certain work output, right? So that represents the workload at 100% VO2 max. So the Tabata study was 170% VO2 max. So certainly super maximal, above 100%, but not to the extent where you see some benefits of other research that I would say have shown even better benefits than the Tabata study. So, But here's the mistake that has happened in the fitness industry. People have done the Tabata pro- protocol um, one of two ways. I, and I would say most people have done it not as the study did it because most people don't know what 100%, 170% V2 max is, right? So they probably just go all out, all right? So they could probably maintain the power output pretty close for the first three 20-second sprints. So they go for 20, recover for 10, go for 20, recover for 10, go for 20, Recover for ten. Now, if in their mind they know they were doing seven, seven to eight, they may have brought down that intensity just because they, they knew that they're not going to last. Here's the thing: if they went all out, you you should stop after three. All right, because the power there's not a human on the planet that after sixty seconds of super maximal uh, intensity can you maintain the power output drops off precipitously. Every single human being. Period. All right, so. Then you would want to take about a four minute recovery and do it again. So, a much better protocol, I would argue, is anything. It could be 10 seconds with five seconds recoveries. You could have one to ones, 10 on, 10 off. You could do 15s with a five. You know, I play around with my clients with that a lot. But at the end of the day, accumulate 60 seconds of super maximal um, intervals and then have a four minute recovery. All right. It's much more effective than going and doing all seven or eight. At the lower intensity, and the thing they need to realize is that's just one study, and it was it was done on a protocol that was good for the skaters with an event that lasted the length of the protocol. Yeah. All right. Well, most people they don't do things that last for two two and a half minutes or more. All right. In actual fact, I tell people from a health perspective, most of the time in our real life, and certainly in a hunter gatherer sort of time, it's about fight or flight. So. I often say like at the Atlanta Olympic Games when there was the bomb, two people were killed. One was unfortunately um, as a result of the bomb directly. The other was a cameraman with heavy equipment sprinting over to, you know, see what was going on, probably filming everything else. We see a lot of heart attacks occurring in people in short duration, high intensity where they haven't trained for that. And they also don't have a filter um, because they've got the you know Monday morning shoveling snow in, in a snowing place with the boss. Hey, you're going to be late. That those sorts of things cause cause heart attacks because people go at intensity than they're capable of. But in the in the gym setting, I've never seen that. People are usually more cautious, mm-hmm. so that they train their ability to increase the intensity. And so working on intensity versus duration is the way to go. And so that protocol of Tabata. Um, has been misused. And then, of course, you have these Tabata classes that last an hour. Well, that's absolutely <laughs> absurd. All right? So, um, you know, I, I've done some very minimal stuff. Uh, again, another article on the Paleodart.com where I said get fit in three and a half minutes per week. Sounds mm-hmm. like a late-night commercial, but I did a little experiment on myself. And there's research now coming out to support this. But just as a little – anyone can do the protocol I did. You can go to the site read how I did it. But basically – I was doing just one minute, all out, every other day. Yeah. So you think Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday—that's seven in two weeks, and that's three and a half minutes per week. And what I was doing—I started—I de myself for about a month or two, where at fifteen percent grade on the treadmill at seven miles per hour, that was close to a maximal effort. You know, I. I probably had about another few seconds in me, but if I basically had to grab the handle, or I, I was off the back of the treadmill. So then, two days later, I came back and put it to seven point one. Two days later, to seven point two. If I didn't succeed, I repeated it to you know two days later at the same speed. If I did succeed, I increased it by point 0.1. And in a period of about five weeks, I improved my um, speed to about eight point three in the in the period that I was training. So it just sort of shows you that. Even with that kind of minimal effort, if it's intense, the body will adapt and respond and changes occur. So that's where I get concerned when I see a lot of the, the high-intensity interval stuff. They're just not utilizing the time and maximizing the benefits like I think people could.
0: So we're pretty much out of time, Mark, but I want to ask this question. You know, you've spoken there about the power output you're able to get and how, you know, that. The, that incomplete recovery, I guess people will talk about with Tabata, means that you're not getting the same power output. You know, I've heard people talk about that and say you know, the real benefit of that incomplete recovery is that you can increase your endurance at the same time as you're developing power. What do you have to say about that?
1: I think that there's, there's an element to that. But what I've seen, and you look at some of the research, the, the amount of oxygen you utilize even in a 60-second sprint is very significant. People don't realize that. So the, the endurance component does get hit, even in, in the part that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So it, the, the, the change occurs more with quality. And I, well, I would argue, and listen, the, there's a place for Tabata, particularly with some middle distance and endurance type athletes. Um, so I'm not saying that that, that doesn't have a place. Um, but if, if that's the protocol, if you're an athlete that has an event for the, that lasts turn off, that's a good protocol for you. If you're a four hundred meter runner, I'd say that's not as good of a protocol for you. So look at the event that you're engaged in, and most average people don't have an event. So I'd say move towards the shorter intervals because you're going to get better benefits because you're going to be working uh, both energy systems simultaneously more effectively. Um, but yeah, there's an element for the endurance component. But if you look at if you go and look at Marty Jabala's work up in Canada, you just g well if, if you go to my website, I've, I've linked to all of that. Marty Jabala did a study where they took college-age males, and they did just um, they were doing the the Wingate kind of test. If you know, people know what that is, a thirty-second all-out sprint on an upright stationary bike. Uh, they they did a VO two max test uh, pre and post, and then they also had them ride at eighty percent of their VO two max and timed how long they could last. So they were actually looking at interval training. And seeing how it would affect endurance training and the interval training was very much super maximal very short duration and they were actually doing just 30 seconds with a four-minute recovery and doing four of them building up to six of them over the course of two weeks they did only 16 minutes worth so it averaged eight minutes per week they put them back on the bike at the same power output and they doubled their endurance capacity they lasted twice as long 25 minutes was the pre-post average 52 minutes was the post average so That's the point. We do hit the endurance when we do the super maximal. So I would argue for most people, the better on the shorter ones than than pushing that longer stuff. That's amazing.
0: Now, Mark, we are out of time, but I want to ask you one last question. In 25 words or less, what do you think of CrossFit?
1: I think, you know, clearly you look at the results. A lot of people have done very, very well with it. I think that um, the concern would be if people aren't getting screened and they're just thrown into it. So obviously a lot of CrossFit places have people that have got training elsewhere and do screen people before they go in. So in other words, I I think that there's a lot of good about it. I think, you know, depending on whether you're at a good place or a bad place. And I think that screening is necessary first. So people know how to move first. Um, I am concerned working through Olympic moves through, you know, fatigue. I don't know how much of that goes on anymore. Um, But I think so long as you know the basic principle of it. I love it. Obviously, it's super maximal, it's high intensity, and I think it's helped a lot of people. And the camaraderie, all that kind of stuff, would be a thumbs up. My biggest concern would just be making sure people are looked after from a physical screen yeah, yeah. and and taught how to move and do the exercises. You know, uh, and I think I think that probably changes happened after a lot of the criticisms that were about that.
0: Yeah, um, I, th- I think you did right, Mark. I think I think it can be great. And having a good trainer, getting good technique, and putting your ego aside are probably the most important things to do it well. I reckon.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, I know. Obviously, I, I know conditioning coaches that are in CrossFit gyms who who are very very good. You know, they've gone yeah. through similar uh, certifications and training and screening protocols. That, that, that and they, you know, they just added that to their protocol. Um, yeah. I'm sure there. It's like anything. There's good and bad in everything, right? But but I'd say overall, you know, if you looked at the bigger, bigger picture, it's probably had a, a very good effect on helping people. You know, improve their health.
0: Well, Mark, I feel like we could talk forever, uh, but we are out of time. Probably over time. So. If people want to find out more about you, um, they can head to your website, which is docsmith.org, and find out all the information about you there. Um, They can also find you, as you said, now writing and and helping out Lauren Cordain on thepaleodiet.com. They can find you on Facebook, as you mentioned before, Off the Mark on Facebook, and on Twitter at DocMarkSmith. So thank you so much for coming on board today, mate. It was a great interview, so much information.
1: All right, Brett. Well, I, I enjoyed it. And if uh, if the audience feels we didn't get to some of the stuff, we want to do it again, I'd be more than happy to do that. So
0: We might definitely have to, I reckon, Mark. So until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com. And let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show.